Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, McDonald Laurier Institute's public policy podcast. I'm Shuvala Majumdar, Monk Senior Fellow for Foreign Policy and the Program Director for our Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. I'm especially excited to welcome today Balkan Devlin, who has been a frequent McDonald Laurier Institute author on all issues with respect to Turkey, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, Eurasia. Uh, we're looking forward to having him play a bigger role and a bigger voice with us in the road ahead. Uh, and we're especially thrilled that, Balkan, you've been able to join us here today in Ottawa. Welcome. How are you? Uh, pretty good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's you've had some good travels of late? Uh, yes. I've uh, been to Riga recently, actually. Um, talked about in the Riga conference uh, with a bunch of uh, excited young um, scholars and, and policymakers. That was, that was very interesting. I suspect Russia was top of mind. Yes, of course, Russia, but increasingly China as well. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so we talked a lot. There was a very good uh, Canadian presence as well. Very good. Uh, so that was very nice. That's very nice. That's excellent. I'm glad you're here to join us uh, on a beautiful fall day. Yes. Sadly, though, that's not what days in Syria are like at this moment. What many commentators are describing as a horrific betrayal of our Kurdish friends and allies. Mm -hmm. And we're watching interesting summit diplomacy occurring between Ankara and Moscow. Mm. Let's start first with where this conflict has essentially recommenced. Mm -hmm. And that is the agreement that the U.S. administration under President Donald Trump had made with the uh, Turkish leadership, Erdogan, permitting them to carry out, in effect, a type of invasion. Mm. Why don't you deconstruct for our listeners what's actually happening in Syria and what the stated ambitions are of Washington and of Turkey inside Syria as it affects the Kurds. This was something coming for a while. Turkey's position regarding the creation of the so-called safe zone in the border between, it's about a 30 kilometer deep and about 400 kilometer wide um, zone in which I think since 2016 at least, Turkey was trying to uh, get that particular safe zone going on. Um, but it was always sort of, you know, how are we going to deal with that? What will be the position for the SDF, uh, Syrian Democratic Forces? American-backed. Uh, American-backed, you know, SDF there. And how that would have an impact on the, on the fight against ISIS and, and so on now, and so forth. Now, the Syrian Democratic Forces are largely cons con conscribed of what kind of fighters? Uh, it was mostly uh, YPGPYD Kurdish fighters mm -hmm. um, is, is, is actually the core uh, of that. And then you also have... Um, some Sunni Arab, um, as well as some Christian and uh, Assyrian um, and Yazidi forces as well mm -hmm. um, that are part of it. Uh, but the, the real sort of the fighting force component is, 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 is PYD, YPG. And that's the primary sort of concern for Turkey because Turkey perceives that as an extension, uh, as an offshoot of PKK, um, which uh, is considered as a, as, a, as a terrorist organization in Turkey. Um, and that's... The, I'll come back to that in a minute, but mm -hmm. that is also um, interesting because up until 2015, um, uh, Turkish government was very much in, in talks with the PYD leadership. For example, Salih Muslim was coming back and forth to Ankara. So things change after 2015, but up until that time, that's sort of... The enemy of my enemy, essentially. Exactly. That, up until that time, that was not much of a sort of a concern about, oh, these are the offshoots of mm -hmm. PKK. Things changed after, so, after that. So in 2015, prior to 2015, I, the, 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 the threat of the Kurds mm -hmm. was existential to Turkish identity and to Turkish border integrity. After 2015, what made... What was the bigger threat 
that encouraged Ankara to have an informal relationship with some of these Kurdish um, militias? Up until, actually, I would, I would argue that it's the flip side of it, um, that what really changed, um, so, so the, the primary sort of Turkish policy towards Syria uh, from 2011, 2012, uh, was first and foremost regime change in, in, in Damascus. Now, that ends up, and that's one of the reasons why all sorts of opposition forces were, were supported and, and let a bunch of you know, jihadists also going through the north. Sponsored by Turkey? Uh, some were, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the so-called moderate rebels. But the, uh, the others were also sort of turned a blind eyes as all, all kinds were, were going. But, you know, when it became obvious that that's actually a horrible policy choice, including a series of attacks by ISIS in Turkey uh, that kills several hundred people. So the government started to change the policy and then switched to realizing that now there is a, a Kurdish corridor being formed because SDF, uh, with American backing, became a, an effective fighting force against ISIS. Now, did SDF ever have any ambitions of calling for a Kurdish state alongside Kurdish minorities inside Turkey I, and merging with the Kurdistan regional government as, in Iraq? As far as I know, no. So that concern that Turkish policymakers might have about some kind of Kurdish bloc, semi-autonomous mm-hmm. region leading to a sovereign nation, mm-hmm. is it would, would they be paranoid by it? Or? It's, it's, I, I would argue that it, there are two concerns there. One is that um, it could act as a sort of center for attraction and therefore uh, destabilizing um, to, uh, to, the, to the Turkey's southeast, mm-hmm. which is you know, mo- mostly Kurdish. Um, the second one is that given the sort of the semi sort of connections between the YPG and, and PKK, um, that that region would be a, a staging ground for uh, for PKK activities in Turkey. So those are the two, two, two major concerns. And especially sort of initial support. Um, Turkey did turn against PYD, YPG, when it, uh, it was sort of arming through heavy weapons and so on and so forth shown to be an effective fighting force. Right. Up until that time, it wasn't a very sort of right. uh, significant concern. So then tell me what the significance of Rojava is in Kurdish identity, in the geopolitical significance of energy. What, what is that symbol to Turkey and to the Kurdish people? I would argue that it's more about the, um, the experiments uh, that was done there, sort of the whole self-rule um, created and uh, sort of consolidated, actually, uh, sort of the Kurdish identity. Mm-hmm. To me, it seems like, at least, that it is different than, for example, KRG, which tends to the Kurdish uh, regional government in Iraq, mm-hmm. that tends to have more sort of two tribal forces that go, goes for decades right. uh, controlling the region. The KDP and uh, Exactly. Yeah. Right? The Varzani and the Talabani mm-hmm. sort of groups, uh, let's put it that way. So it's different than that. It also, in, in, in northern Syria, it enabled this sort of autonomous local um, new identity being emerged, as well as the, um, the, the fight against ISIS also provided a founding myth, in a way, mm-hmm. um, that, that you see in, in many nations when you have that sort of uh, a war with, with an enemy that, is, that you, you fight and defeat it. And in the case of ISIS, you are defeating a genocidal uh, group that right. aims to completely destroy 
um, your life, your way of life, people right. and, enslave you. Um, so that actually created a very strong um, national identity component to it. And that's, that's I think, the primary sort of uh, importance rather than anything too, too, too geographically um, significant. Now, it also means that the project itself, uh, and I think we'll come to that, that it does not have much of a uh, future, partly because there is not much um, to, to be alone there without having some sort of regional sponsorship right. uh, for, for the Kurds in, 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 in northern Syria, because the resources there are not just sufficient. Okay. So then kind of taking a step back mm -hmm. a, a little higher level, looking at this region, this corridor that mm -hmm. the Turks wanted to establish mm -hmm. to return refugees, mm -hmm. we've seen in response to some Western condemnation, Erdogan threatened to weaponize migration mm -hmm. and refugees mm -hmm. into Europe. Mm -hmm. um, the whole point of this corridor was to establish what, a safe haven for refugees mm -hmm. presently in Turkey that Turkey can no longer sustain? Mm -hmm. Or is it more about um, establishing a geopolitical presence for Turkey in northern Syria for the long term? I would argue it's the second one. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the refugee issue is, is important, but it is secondary. Mm -hmm. The primary goal, and in that sense, that's one of the reasons why there was a sort of a broad support within the Turkish public. The primary goal was to... Um, sort of basically move the Kurdish forces away uh, from the from the Turkish border, um, as 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 I said, because Turkey perceives YPG as a threat right. um, to to the country, um, and thus uh, the sort of establishing this uh, in, in two or three different places, um, bridgeheads in a way would enable uh, Turkey to prevent the creation of a continuous uh, Kurdish uh, zone on, on the border. So it's having those bridgeheads and, and, and military possible controls right. because that would, that would prevent security threats as perceived by Turkey. The refugee issue is secondary. It's more on the domestic. It's, it's part of the selling the operation as, as, as to the domestic audience as well. Right. Because if there is one thing that you know, sort of unites the Turkish uh, public is that uh, there is an increasingly growing sort of uh, discontent with the with the presence of um, Syrian right. uh, refugees, 3.7 million. And if you add others, there are about 4 million uh, refugees in Turkey. The, the population is about 80 million, so 5% of the population, significant uh, amount of uh, people. And, and there is a backlash domestically, including normally pro-government uh, groups. And thus, this is basically trying to sort of calm them down. Mm -hmm. Look, we'll create this and maybe move. Yeah. If people want to move, they you, you can do that. But how are you going to? You're not going to bus people there, <laughs> you know. You're not going to you know put them in in in, in buses and then send them there. Right. Um, that's just not going to work. And right. you know, so practical is, is a practical solution. I'm not very optimistic about that component. Mm -hmm. And then you also have the whole Idlib issue and whatnot. So there's a bunch of other things right. going on. Um, so the refugee issue is, in essence, I would argue, secondary to the whole strategy of it. Okay. Now. We've seen some very interesting symmetry between Washington and Ankara and Ankara and Moscow. Why don't we start talking a little bit about this, Balkan, because sure. I'm very curious about your view. Mm -hmm. We've seen that there's been you know, public diplomacy between President Trump and President Erdogan that's not constructive, mm -hmm. uh, and yes. public diplomacy between President Erdogan and President Putin that is very constructive, yeah. <laughs> at least from the Turkish yeah. and, and Russian perspective. Yeah. What's going on here? Um, I think two things. One, 
sort of <laughs> Trump's way of conducting diplomacy while blindsiding, you know, signing everybody, including its own Defense Department and the State Department, is very harmful uh, for the long-term um, relations between allies. Uh, that's, that's definitely the case. That's also very much true for the U.S.-Turkish relations. In the short term, it might have benefited, in a, in a, in a limited sense, Turkey's, satisfied Turkey's stated goals regarding, regarding Syria. But in the long term, this, the whole spat and, and the back and forth and the language used and, and so on and so forth seriously undermined long-term trust between two, two, two countries. So it's not much of a dialogue, really. It's basically, on, 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 on the Trump side, it was very much of an impulsive move because we know he wanted to get out. I mean, that's not only limited to Trump. Mm-hmm. Since, uh, you know, Obama administration um, that wanted to draw down the forces in the Middle East and did not want to commit the necessary resources to do that. And with the whole fight against ISIS issue, uh, we knew from the very beginning that you know, what if you do end up working with another non-state actor, you either need to be there for the very, very long term to provide support, or you would eventually need to leave, and the the regional actors would get in. Trump does that in a poop. You know, I'm leaving and I'm I'm, I'm out. And that pushes right. Erdogan right into Putin's arms. Exactly. Right. So uh, basically, Trump says, "I'm I'm 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 going. You do whatever you want to do." And and Putin was very happy to to step up because he doesn't have to, you know lure anybody in, he just walks in. So the whole sort of back and forth between Erdogan and Trump is not really conducive right. for any sort of diplomatic issues. Now, when you switch to, to Erdogan and, and, and Putin, that particular relationship, it is it's a very complicated relationship, partly because there are so much pressure points uh, that are available. And, and, and Putin is a much sort of much more savvy, you know, Negotiator, negotiator and, yeah. and, a, and a deal maker. Yeah. Uh, you know, he might not have written the art of deal, but he actually <laughs> knows how to do it. So there's a bunch of pressure points there, including Idlib, which is you know, which will be the second thing. You know, we're talking about uh, over Syria and the Kurds today. Why is Idlib important to Moscow? Um, it is important to Moscow for two reasons. One, I would add, this sounds very cynical, but um, the the presence of the last sort of stronghold of the opposition, the rebels against the Assad regime, uh, which is, you know, different shades of Islam, basically, is what you have there, um, uh, from greenish to dark green. No, you're not talking about the Canadian green. Uh, no, no. These no, are not eco-friendly no. radicals. Uh, no. no. <laughs> I mean, they are, in a way, eco-friendly, I guess, if you think about their ideologies very much 14th century uh, right. or, or whatnot, but <laughs> otherwise it is actually not. So what do you end up though? The risk is though, you have you know, 60 to 80,000 battle-hardened, very um, sort of radical and radicalized fighters plus 3 million civilians living in a very small area. Mm-hmm. Now that is the last part that eventually uh, Syrian forces would, would go and, and capture. Uh, but their presence there also remains a good you know, bargaining chip by, by Putin and, and the Syrian regime against the West. To justify. Justify, as well as saying that, look, there is these all these other jihadists and this and that. They will continue to be a, a, a possible threat. And that leaves Assad as the you know, lesser of the two evils. So there is that option. Now, it also works 
for Putin to put pressure on on Turkey because any operation there would result in a, a, another wave of refugees. The numbers suggest anywhere between half a million to a million and a quarter mm-hmm. uh, new refugees coming mm-hmm. towards Turkish border. Because mm-hmm. you know, remember, these people are mostly those fighters and their families being bussed around from the rest of the Syrian um, uh, you know, cities as government take them back and then sent there. So those people most of the time have no option to go back to government control areas if there is an attack. So they would actually go there. So, so Idlib is a strategic chip for exactly. Syria and for Moscow exactly. to justify the Assad genocidal regime's ongoing existence. That's that's definitely one, mm-hmm. and that also works as as putting a pressure on Turkey to toe the line. So then, in that on that mm-hmm. basis, mm-hmm. what was the result of the meeting that Erdogan and Putin had? What did they announce to the world? Um, well, first, they announced the creation of well, two things. One, Turkey gets a, a, a safe zone um, of 30 kilometers to about 120 kilometers, basically ratifying what is what happened on the ground, mm-hmm. pretty much. And Putin said that the, the Kurdish forces would withdraw to the 30 kilometer uh, line in, in the remaining of, of the border area as well. But this time it will be the Syrian army Official regime's army and um, Russian military police that will move in in the areas that are right now not under Turkish or Turkish allied uh, groups control, uh, and then there will be joint patrols uh, between Turkish and Russian uh, joint military uh, uh, patrolling of a ten-kilometer uh, zone. So what you have is a is a you know, four hundred-kilometer uh, length of a border, and then about ten kilometer, and then you have a basically a small sort of uh, uh, rectangular that is getting down to 30 kilometers and then going up to 10 kilometers again. That's the zone. The whole 30 kilometer zone, the Kurdish forces would withdraw and, and the, the regime would take over. So that's actually pretty much what what Turkey has been talking with the Americans in the past three years now. Right. So when Turkey went to go create this zone, uh-huh. these facts on the ground that yeah. they, get, they didn't get Russia to ratify. Yeah. Would you say that Turkish military personnel, that the conduct of their campaign was done with or without atrocities? I would say that the majority of the sort of the infantry and the, and the and the fighting forces is actually what's called the right now the Syrian National Army, mm-hmm. the former sort of Free Syrian Army mm-hmm. uh, group. So the majority of sort of the action is, is by them with Turkish support. There are reports of those uh, Turkish back proxies committing certain atrocities. I, you know, I don't know. I've not been there. I would be very much surprised if uh, the Tur- regular Turkish troops were involved in those. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. But, but again, when, you know, one of the side effects of working with proxies is that unless you can control them, uh, these things uh, are, are, are bound to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the risks of uh, you know, engaging in proxy warfare. So, right. uh, yeah. So here we are, <clears throat> um, modern Turkey, revanchist in its identity, automatic in its ambitions, um, at least at the leadership mm-hmm. level. I'm not saying that's what the views of the popular uh, public policy consensus yeah. is inside Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, making deals with rivals to NATO, including Russia for yes. missile defense, the S-400 system, yes. allying with Russia to essentially uphold the Bashar al-Assad regime, 
that Turkey, as you described earlier, five years prior, exactly. was fundamentally opposed to, yeah. quite literally and figuratively. Yeah. And now we are having an existential crisis, I think, mm. about what Turkey is as a country, mm. particularly as it relates to NATO. What do you think is the future of Turkish-NATO relations? Mm -hmm. Is it still a member of NATO? Can NATO member states gather together with Turkey around the table mm -hmm. and expect that they are a steadfast, solid alliance? Mm -hmm. Or is something bigger happening here? I think the, I mean, there are two, two parts to this, uh, I would say. One, Turkey's Syria policy broadly, but also Turkey's increasingly sort of close relations with Russia fundamentally undermined Turkey's relations with, with NATO allies. More importantly, it fundamentally uh, undermines the trust between allies. Right. Um, and so until this particular policy set up changes right. um, with, the, with, the, with the current leadership, I would argue that um, when, when the countries sit down in the North Atlantic Council, uh, they would always have this particular doubt in mind what extent we could count on Turkey to, to, to align with us and, and, and move forward. So give us a bit of a tour of that meeting with yeah. uh, representatives of Europe and North America having a discussion. Tell us about the differences that Western countries have on their opinions with respect to Turkey or Turkey's role. I would say, I mean, broadly speaking, uh, if you look at the NATO membership, yeah. um, you have sort of the Nordic members from Germany to Norway to, to Denmark um, that would focus mostly on the sort of the human rights component and, and sort of the democratic backsliding in Turkey, mm -hmm. an increasingly illiberal and authoritarian uh, regime um, uh, in Turkey, um, which would, you know, sort of try to minimize military to military contacts. So the Nordics would be Turkey. a bit cautious about that. Exactly. And right. that also started with the arms embargoes and, and, and whatnot, and, and Sweden, for example, not a NATO member, but uh, an important sort of NATO partner right. in the region uh, was sort of spearheading that. The Germans are also following. So you'll have the more democracy-concerned groups uh, there. Of Northern um, Europe, Of Northern Europe, essentially, basically. Um, you would have Eastern um, members, such as Hungary and Poland, um, uh, that their own leaders tend to have authoritarian uh, tendencies, uh, so they may not necessarily... Uh, be very uh, you know, enthusiastic about condoning, you know, uh, sanctioning Turkey or, 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 or condemning Turkey, thinking that that might actually come back to them in the future as well. Um, so they would probably be more pro-Turkish in their um, Pragmatic, attitudes. perhaps. Pragmatic in the sense that because that might actually turn around and, and hit them later on as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have, of course... Uh, the, the southern allies, uh, Italy, Mediterranean, Mediterranean, Europe. and they are concerned a lot on, so they do share common concerns with refugees and, and, and in that sense. So they will have a lot more sort of uh, concern about further upsetting Turkey, because that would actually might increase. That weaponized migration threat that Erdogan work, has made exactly. would happen, and yeah. that would exactly. collapse their exactly. right. economies. So that, right. Exactly, so that's a, that's a, that's a big concern. Right. And then, of course, you have, you have the U.S. Now, it is also... Actually, before you leave continental Europe, what about the views of the Baltic countries? Oh, the Baltics are very much concerned with Russia, naturally. There are, I think, two ways to look at it. One is that if... Russia's eye turns towards the south, and the concern is there. It means there is less resources to destabilize the Baltics, so that might work. You know, consider this like the Mordor's eye. Right. 
um, you attract attention to somewhere else and that might actually work. Um, but they would also be very much concerned uh, of uh, NATO unity being undermined uh, by, 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 by increasing Russian influence on some of the member states like Turkey, which would uh, make them much more concerned. Right? Okay. So you had the Baltics. Uh, and then two P5 partners, France and the UK? Um, UK is, <laughs> they are trying to sort their own problem. With they have their, issues. Their, their issues right now. And they tend to be still, so I think that that would a lot depend on how the Brexit issue would go. So, uh, because that would link, you know, let, you know, the, would be the only sort of British link to the defense uh, regarding Europe, right? So that's a different story. So I, I, I can't really predict anything at this stage. Um, France is an interesting question because Macron definitely have this sort of pan-European um, ideas about what should be the role there. And he, he signals contradictory stuff with Russia. He wants to sort of make a deal occasionally, but then he also wants to play the tough guy as well. Um, so I would argue that he would probably, now given that Merkel will be leaving soon, right. enough, um, he would want to sort of play the European um, leader in that sense and try to sort of pull Turkey to the line and with a mix of carrots and sticks. This is his moment. Uh, yeah, that's his moment. Whether he can, he can do that or not, we shall see. Right. <laughs> then coming over across the pond, if you will, start with the United States. Um, Again, that's also one big problem because it provides, well, the current administration, if not hostile, very sort of skeptical right. of NATO. And uh, thus, that setup relationship in terms of um, Trump's personal relations do matter, how he shapes these things. But if there is a new incoming administration and the U.S. goes back to its traditional role, uh, that would probably suggest... Uh, more pressures on Turkey to um, uh, not align as much as, as it did with Russia. Right. Um, as well as, not, but I wouldn't expect the same level of you know, criticism regarding democratization issues. Right. The U.S. has never been sort of very much um, uh, concerned about that as long as the military strategic components work, right. uh, unlike sort of Northern Europeans. So I would say that their focus would tend to be more on, and we can see that right now as well, uh, with still ongoing negotiations and talks apparently between Turkey and, and the U.S. regarding Patriots as well as F-35s, uh, with the suggestion that just put those as 400s to the, you know, to multiple them and then put them to the side, you can still get this. Right. So that would suggest a more accommodating um, policy uh, towards Erdogan. I Basically taking the long view on Turkey rather exactly. than the short one. Yeah, I think the best, and in, in that sense, in, in one way it makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, there's not much that can be done with sort of the current state of affairs. Um, what is more important, I think, is sort of maintaining a, a basic set of relationships that once things improve and change, right. um, uh, things can get back to you know, having Turkey um, not drift way too far right. Um, right. away from NATO. So then here we are in the nation's capital yes. of Canada, here in Ottawa. Um, you've given us a masterful portrait of all of the issues that kind of emanate from the so-called Syria problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and a new government has just been elected, a minority yes. government of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's. We're not sure if Minister Freeland will continue to be his foreign minister. Mm -hmm. Odds on uh, that she would continue. She's been very effective at her mm -hmm. job. What would you say as they start shaking off the campaign and getting 
focused on to the question of governing. Mm -hmm. Imagine with me, you're sitting across the table from Prime Minister Trudeau. Okay. What would you tell him he needs to know about the Canadian interest in what's happening in Syria mm -hmm. and in the Canadian-Turkish partnership? Mm -hmm. Well, um, with Canadian interest in Syria, I would argue that the primary interest um, of Canada in Syria and broadly in the Middle East is a stable regional order uh, that would benefit Canada's uh, allies and partners in the region. You counsel stability. Exactly. So, uh, because the prime, I mean, geographically, Canada being far away would is sort of insulated uh, from the immediate effects. Of so he might push back on you saying, you know, we're watching these horrible videos of Kurdish allies of mm -hmm. Canada trained by Canadian military personnel mm -hmm. to be successful in the fight against mm -hmm. ISIS. We've seen this betrayal. Mm -hmm. um, we should respond to that. What would be your counsel in the context of the rights of those Kurds versus the stability that you're advancing? I would argue that it also it comes down to resources. Um, how much resources Canada can put in to back up uh, its word, right? Um, and sometimes sort of getting up in front and defending or claim to defend certain allies and partners and others without necessarily able to help them when push comes to the show mm -hmm. is actually more, uh, more, more harmful mm -hmm. because you are end up talking empty words rather than any solid, um, solid benefit. So uh, what Canada can do though, uh, and it has a, a history, a successful history of, of doing so is a lot of, um, coordination and mobilization of the other allies to achieve a, a, a region that is stable, that does not um, lead to uh, you know, cascading problems for Canadian allies uh, in the Middle East and beyond that would harm uh, Canada's, ally, Canada's economy, Canadian interests, uh, uh, broadly speaking. So instead of sort of um, giving promises that they cannot keep, um, Canada could work people or with countries that could actually do things on the ground because they have the resources, they have the connections, they have the interests, and can coordinate um, and mobilize those resources and build those coalitions to be able to do things rather than itself trying to play the, the sort of the, the primary role uh, in a region where it has um, uh, limited leverage. Do the diplomatic work. Do the coalition building exactly. work. Do the work. Don't just virtue signal. Basically, exactly. that's exactly. what you're suggesting. Exactly, virtue signaling is is generally, you know, it's, it's very nice for for the person or the group that is doing it, but it generally uh, ends up harming uh, for those uh, in the name of one uh, virtue signals. Well, on that note, Balkan Devlin, uh, a longtime MLI author, soon to be housed at our great center yes. for advancing Canada's interests abroad. Greatly appreciate your lucid insights as to what's happening in a very perplexing region with shifting alliances uh, and for your suggestions to what the government of Canada can do. Thank you for spending some time with us today. It's to always you. a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.